Welcome to the Meb Favor Show, where the focus is on helping you grow and preserve your wealth. Join us as we discuss the craft of investing and uncover new and profitable ideas, all to help you grow wealthier and wiser. Better investing starts here. Meb Faber is the co-founder and chief investment officer at Cambria Investment Management. Due to industry regulations, he will not discuss any of Cambria's funds on this podcast. All opinions expressed by podcast participants are solely their own opinions and do not reflect the opinion of Cambria Investment Management or its affiliates. For more information, visit cambriainvestments.com. Welcome, friends. We have a great podcast set up for you today, and I'd like to welcome our special guest, Rob Arnott. Rob, hello. Welcome to the show. Well, thank you very much for the invitation. Quick intro about Rob for those who aren't familiar. Rob, founder, chairman of Research Affiliates, started that back in 2002, runs some funds for PIMCO, All Asset, All Asset, All Authority. Rob's background comes from all sorts of different shops, familiar in the quant world, First Quadrant, Solomon Brothers, now City, TSA Capital, now Analytic. Rob has literally written over a 100 academic articles. I read about half of those catching up for this interview and uh, also has won numerous awards. He is the co-author of The Fundamental Index, A Better Way to Invest, and got his BS from somewhat local up the street, University of California, Santa Barbara, in econ, math, and computer science. So, Rob, I figured we get started talking about one of our favorite topics we talk about on the podcast and in general, and that's a little bit about market cap weighted indexing. And this is a little timely. I saw Zweig had a nice article out about the 40-year anniversary of Mr. Bogle launching uh, one of his index funds. wanted to start out with, I saw your book, Fundamental Index, dedicated it to a certain individual as some of the ideas that you started thinking about in the Fundamental Index books. But let, let me start off there. Let, let you talk from uh, why you dedicated that to George, who he was, and then also uh, let's let's go down the road of market cap uh, weighted indexes. Sure. George Kane has been a longtime friend. The organizations that he's managed have been uh, important clients of mine as well. He founded the Common Fund, which manages commingled university endowments for schools all over the country, and has been a, a clear thinker on big investment issues for all of his life. So back in about 2002, he approached me and he was deeply concerned. He sat on the board of New York State Pension and a couple of other state funds. He expressed deep concern that um, many, many tens of billions were indexed to the S&P 500 by these jumbo state funds who seemed oblivious to the fact that they were tacitly loading up on bubble stocks, which were savaging their uh, the wealth of the state by dint of savaging the pension portfolios. He said there's got to be a better way. So he and I and a couple of others, including Marty Leibowitz, who was then with TIA Kraft and is now back with Morgan Stanley, we talked about the issues of cap weighting. And the heart of the problem is a really simple one. Cap weighting weights companies in direct proportion to the price. If the price doubles, the weight in the portfolio doubles. Now, 
common sense in investing says you want to have more of your money in stocks that are going to produce higher returns. Okay, well, that's a truism. Well, tacitly, that means that with cap weighting, you're making an, a, a bet, an active bet, that the companies that have doubled in price now have better return prospects than they did before they doubled in price. <laughs> well, that's just nonsense. That just goes against any uh, sensible view of the world. I and my team viewed this as an interesting challenge, an interesting puzzle. Why bother weighting companies in proportion to their price? Now, cap weighting has some wonderful advantages, very low turnover, very low trading costs, vast capacity, representativeness spanning the macroeconomy. How could you capture all of those benefits without linking the weight to the price? Well, it turns out it's incredibly simple. Just weight companies according to how big they are. ExxonMobil is huge, so give it big weight because it's a big company, not because it's large market cap. And the result is that you wind up with a portfolio that anchors on the company size and that contra-trades against the market's most extreme bets. So if a company soars in price, but the underlying fundamentals haven't changed, Fundamental Index will say, gosh, thanks for the nice profits. Let me bank those profits, sell the stock back down to its economic footprint, and reweight it back to the size that the company actually is. Companies that crater, Fundamental Index will say, gee, that's disappointing to see it go down. But on the other hand, boy, that's an interesting opportunity. Let me buy at these low prices and top it back up to its economic footprint. In so doing, if you're trimming the growth stocks down to their economic weight and boosting the value stocks, the cheap stocks, up to their economic weight, it tacitly has a value bias. It's a value-tilted portfolio. But it spans the macroeconomy in a meaningful, economically meaningful way. It mirrors the look of the composition of the macroeconomy instead of mirroring the look of the market. And it has low turnover, and it has high liquidity, and it has vast investment capacity. And, oh, by the way, you go back historically, and you find that all over the world, when you invest in this fashion, you beat the market by oh, one and a half to two percent per year compounded. So I sat down with a friend of mine who's an investor, but not a professional. And they said, what are you reading? I said, oh, I'm getting ready for this podcast. Rob, you know, we're going to talk about market cap weighting indexes and, you know, why they're suboptimal. And I said, you know, are you familiar with market cap weighting? And she said, yes. And she said, that's investing in the biggest companies. And I said, yes, biggest by what measure? And it was funny because she said, you know, took a pause for a second and she said, well, revenues are profits, right? And I said, no, it's interesting because a lot of people think market cap weighting is biggest by a lot of these measures. Like you mentioned, book, cash flow, sales, dividends, all these things. In reality, what you're describing is fundamental indexing. And the question that I had for you, and this is more of a thought experiment, if we could go back in time 40 years to the 70s when a lot of these, you know, Wells Fargo, Jack Bogle, a lot of these guys were developing what were the first index funds. My thought experiment is why do you think they picked market cap weighting as 
you know, the first index fund? Why wouldn't they think about any other, you know, equal weighting or fundamental weighting? You know, if you're an alien, like you mentioned, it seems counterintuitive way to build the first one. Any, any thoughts on why that was kind of the first iteration of index 1.0? There's a really simple reason, and that is that finance theory taught us that cap weighting is correct. A longer answer is, hey, it was already available. And people were already using it because the S&P 500 was viewed as a broad market index indicating how the stock market was performing. And yes, that's exactly what it is. I love your thought experiment. I'm going to take it back a couple more decades. Fortune 500 was launched in 1954, three years before the S&P 500. Fortune 500 was the 500 largest companies by sales. Let's suppose Fortune had said, you know, it would be really neat not only to publish a list of the 500 largest businesses in the United States, but also to create an index of these companies weighted by how big their sales are. Well, if that had been done and S&P came along three years later and said, gosh, that's not the stock market, that's the business world. The stock market is weighted in accordance with the market value of companies. Let's create S&P 500, the 500 largest market cap companies. This is the stock market. This is the index of the stock market. Fortunes is the index of the macro economy. Well, roll the clock forward again from there to the time of Jack Bogle launching Vanguard, no one would have given a thought to indexing to market cap. Jack would have said, oh, gosh, of course we're going to index according to the size of the business. Just look at the relative performance. Over the last 20 years, you would have won by 2% a year compounded. Why on earth would you want to wait by a company's popularity? So the essence of the issue is availability. S&P 500 was available. It was used by everybody, not as an index to manage, but as a measure of stock market performance. And secondly, finance theory was barreling down this path of market efficiency, and you had Bill Sharp ultimately eventually winning a Nobel Prize for his proof that you can't beat the cap-weighted market. The market cap-weighted market on a risk-adjusted basis cannot be outperformed if the market is perfectly efficient, prices are all correct. If all investors have the same opinions on companies' risks and performance expectations, if all investors can trade free, no trading costs, no taxes, etc. Now, Bill would be the first to admit that the array of assumptions isn't correct and therefore that the capital asset pricing model is an approximation of the real world, an idealized approximation that shows how the world ought to operate and is not, in fact, the real world. But you had a lot of people saying, okay, well, we see this proof that you can't beat cap weighting. We already have cap weighted indexes out there. Let's just match those and get out of the stock picking game altogether. Fundamental index also gets out of the stock picking game, but it is in the stock weighting game. 
because it reweights companies instead of weighting them according to popularity, it weights them in accordance to the size of the business. Instead of tracking the look and composition of the stock market, it tracks the look and composition of the publicly traded macroeconomy. So that's what's cool about it. And I think that's a great explanation. One of the best descriptions that I think to the broad audience as to why cap weighting is suboptimal is a couple papers y'all wrote. One I think was called Too Big to Succeed. Another was called, I believe, The Winner's Curse, where you talk about some of the reason that the cap weighting struggles. And a lot of it has to do with some of the largest weightings within the cap weighting. Maybe you want to talk about that real quick uh, before we move on to some other topics. Sure, sure. That was a fun paper. It's an issue that gets, I think, less attention than than it ought to get. Uh, in fact, you're the first person interviewing me who's asked about that particular paper. What's interesting is if you go back historically and just look at the number one company, the top dog in any sector, in any country, in the world by market capitalization. What's the biggest tech company in the world today by market cap? It's Apple. What's the biggest oil stock in the world today? I think it's ExxonMobil, but it might be Shell. And you go through the list and then ask the question, let's say you want to invest sensibly with broad diversification and let's say you want to be really simple about it and choose market leaders, dominant players. So I want to just own the number one market capitalization company, the most dominant company in every sector in the U.S. stock market. Okay. Well, that sounds sensible enough. How's it do? Well, it does 5% per year compounded worse than the stock market. 5% per year shortfall. So, so you look at that and you think, gosh, what's going on here? Picking the number one most popular, most beloved, most respected, most valuable company in each sector, and I underperform by 5% a year. Good gracious. When you think about it, though, the companies that are number one in market capitalization are big companies that are also trading at high multiples, big companies that are also popular and beloved, where they wind up having to perform brilliantly as a business just to justify their current price, never mind getting ahead and beating the market. Secondly, the number one market leader in each sector has a target painted on on his or her front, back, sides, head, you name it, whether it's regulators or competitors or uh, the punditry, everyone's taking shots at them. Apple was golden and beloved until it became number one market cap, and then all of a sudden it started to attract shots. It's still golden and beloved, but the gold is a bit tarnished because people are starting to take shots at it. Well, that's natural for the number one player. So, of course, the number one market cap company is going to be a big business in the sector. And, of course, it'll also be the one, one of the ones trading at a premium multiple because that's what it takes to get number one market cap. And, of course, 
it's priced for perfection. It has to succeed at everything in order just to stay where it is, let alone to make further progress and to beat the market. We found that if you pick the number one market cap company in the world, just rotate into that number one market cap company as it changes from year to year because the number one company doesn't stay the same for decades on end. It changes. And so you're constantly owning the most beloved and then finding it's less beloved and you have to trade back into a new company that's the most beloved. Okay, suppose you do that. How does it perform relative to owning a broad global stock market? It underperforms by 11% per annum compounded. 11%. So the top dog is also, we talk endlessly about companies that are too big to fail. No, these companies are in many cases too big to succeed. It's really kind of astounding. But when you think about it, like you mentioned, there's a lot of reason that makes sense in a capitalistic world. And it's probably the way that it should be. We, we often joke that there's probably an ETF in there somewhere to just simply exclude the top few holdings or short them or combine them into an ETF. It's a really fascinating area. Um, and, and it matters in the U.S. where like you'll see these companies, I think Apple and a number of companies that have got to that kind of magic 4% of the stock market in the U.S. And almost every time they hit that 4% area, you know, it's the press takes over. That's going to be the first trillion dollar company. But in reality, you say, look, this is actually probably not a good thing for them to be happening. It's even worse in a lot of foreign stock markets because they're smaller and more concentrated. I think you mentioned in some of your papers the percent of the market cap can get up into the double digits. I think you mentioned in one case, it was like 30% of the index. But that's one of the true flaws of market cap weighting is when you have these big bubbles that the price, um, you know, back to the late 90s, you've mentioned this, a lot of the stocks that you had the biggest weight on were the most bubblicious type of names, the Cisco's of the world that would really hurt your performance going forward. I think that's a good segue into a little bit of this topic of smart beta. You know, it's a phrase that probably you're dead sick of talking about, but you've actually written a couple great papers recently. We'll post all these to the, to the show notes. How can smart beta go horribly wrong? As well as another one. And I think there might be a third in the series, but why don't you talk a little bit about smart beta? You know, as we move away from the market cap portfolio, Kind of what, what does smart beta mean in, in your view? And then also talk a little bit about your ideas on, you know, factor valuations as well. Well, firstly, let's start with the label smart beta. It's a clever marketing catchphrase. Who doesn't want to be smart? But I think looking back on the history of the label is kind of interesting. The, the inspiration for inventing the label smart beta was actually fundamental index, our work on fundamental index. It was invented, the expression was invented by Towers Watson in London, and they liked the fact that fundamental index breaks the link with stock price. So that the more expensive a company is, well, that has nothing to do with what your weight in the portfolio is. You're weighting companies more if they become more successful, not if they're more popular and more expensive. So they liked that. They liked the fact that it demonstrably adds value historically. And so they decided we need to encourage our clients, our consulting clients, to diversify their beta exposure. Yeah, use cap-weighted core equity if you want, but also use a strategy that can 
break the link with price. And so rather than ju- just saying split it between cap weight and fundamental index, they coined the expression smart beta and they broadened it to include equal weight, minimum variance, low volatility strategies, ad hex risk efficient strategy, TOBAM's maximum diversification strategy, and so forth. All of these are strategies that weight companies in a fashion that is not controlled by the stock price. That if the price goes up, the weight doesn't. Okay, well, that's interesting. And that's the common shared source of alpha for all of these. All of these strategies add value because they break the link with price. Fundamental index doesn't add value because it's smarter about fundamentals. No, actually, that's not the reason it adds value. It adds value because it's waiting on something other than price. So they coined the expression, and it took off. Now, everybody wants to do smart data. And every investment manager wants to say, we do smart beta too. Look at this product. So the definition of smart beta has been stretched to encompass almost anything other than cap-weighted broad market indexation. Anything you do that's mechanistic, that's objective, that is constructed in a formulaic fashion, people are branding it as smart beta. Now, if smart beta is broadened to encompass everything, then the term means nothing. In our paper, How Can Smart Beta Go Horribly Wrong?, we drew attention. The paper's been misunderstood. Some people think that one of the originators of Smart Beta is suddenly against Smart Beta. No, not at all. The essence of the paper is, A, there's some not very smart ideas masquerading as Smart Beta, and B, Even good ideas in smart beta can be temporarily overpriced. So if you buy any strategy, it's the same as buying a stock. If you buy a stock, do you buy it and not care what you're paying? Or do you buy it and ask, what price can I get this for and is that a sensible price? Any sensible investor will do that, will gauge the price. Well, the same thing holds true for managers, for strategies, for asset classes. What's cheap? What's cheaper than its historic norms? And the same holds true for smart beta. There are smart beta strategies that are trading at near record valuation multiples relative to the market. Some low volatility strategies are currently trading at more than twice the market multiple. Well, if you buy low vol expecting downside protection, just expecting that low volatility means less risk of losing money, then you don't want to be invested in stocks that are trading at twice the market multiple. And so when low volatility, which historically trades at a discount, to the market at a 10 or 20% cheaper than the market when it's trading at twice the market multiple, oh my goodness, what happens if those stocks revert back to market multiples? You've just underperformed the market by 5,000 basis points. This is not to say that, that low vol is a terrible idea. I like low vol. We offer a low vol product. It's to say that if people buy a strategy without asking, gee, is it trading expensive now or cheap now, they may very well be buying something with great historical performance and lousy future performance. Last observation on this is something very simple. What 
can we say about anything that's newly overpriced? If it's newly overpriced, it will have bad future performance and eventually, and it will have wonderful past performance. So when people use past performance to pick their smart beta strategies, they're making a, um, a smart beta 101 error, a very, very simple and very costly error. And, and there's some great examples you cite in the papers. Again, we'll put these in the show notes, but talking about when a lot of factors got discovered, you were talking about price to book and the performance before and the price after. And the example you said was, look, you know, a lot of these academics and investors that were writing about these factors are only publishing them because they worked in the past. They wouldn't certainly publish it if, if a factor didn't work. But in a lot of cases, those factors didn't have as good performance going forward. But a lot of the reasons I think we're seeing a lot of these value distortions go back to kind of the environment we're in in flows. And certainly when you have a lot of these flows into funds, whether it's low vol, we've talked a lot about dividend yielders. I mean, the largest dividend ETF, I think, has a higher valuation on every metric than the S&P and a lower dividend yield, ironically. But so, uh, you know, our buddy Wes Gray, who was on the on the podcast, refers to one of the cheaper factors, which I think you said the value factor is in, it's at least bottom quartile, maybe even bottom decile, is the, the value investor pain train of the last seven years. But I think it's a very common sense approach. And, you know, we think about it top down as well, you know, going back to looking at, say, Japan in the 80s, you know, at some point, you as an investor, you have to say, look, this just doesn't make sense. Or you can have a quantitative process to reduce exposure when the factor is maybe too expensive. And we'll, we'll kind of come back to ideas on how to do that in a minute when we're talking about asset allocation. But we only have you for a limited amount of time. I wanted to shift a little bit into the return environment. So as we're talking about valuation of factors, we can also talk about valuation of top-down markets in general. So the entire U.S. stock market, as well as bond market, and also investor expectations of returns. You've written quite a bit on this, including a great UCLA speech, which we'll post. But maybe uh, maybe want to open that up to you and talk a little bit about the return environment from a top-down perspective. We've written a fair amount about what we describe as an expectations gap Low investment returns aren't a bad thing. If you've got very low yields, it is what it is. The danger is if you're expecting high returns and you get low returns, your plans get demolished. If you expect low returns and get high returns, well, gosh, your hopes are golden. If you expect low returns and you get low returns, then you'll have done something very, very sensible. You'll be spending less, saving more, and planning to work a little bit longer. Well, that's okay. That's a whole lot better than running out of money when you turn 80. And we have vast swaths of the baby boom generation who are positioning themselves to run out of money at age 80 or even sooner. And they're doing so by dint of having return expectations that are outlandishly high. What do I mean by that? Most retail investors think, gosh, my stock should give me 8 or 10% a year, or maybe even at a little better than that. No, that's nonsense. The yield is 2%. So if the yield is 2%, how do you get 10% return? Well, you've got to have either 8% growth 
in earnings and dividends, or 8% per year rising valuation multiples. Valuation multiples are already stretched, so let's toss that one right out the window. It's not very likely. 8% growth in earnings and dividends? How many people really think that in this slow growth environment that's plausible? GDP growth has slowed to 2-3% per year. Well, gosh, if GDP growth, and that's in, that's in nominal terms, not even real terms. If growth in GDP is 2 or 3% per year and you've got a 2% yield, well, maybe you should expect 3 or 4% return from your stocks. Gee, nobody wants to expect that. And if you're getting zero yield from the bank and 2% yield on bonds, maybe you should expect zero return from your cash holdings and 2% from your bonds. People need to ratchet down their return expectations. And uh, uh, folks think that I'm a deep pessimist when I say this, but no, I think it's just plain old realism. And the pessimism really relates to wanting to expect more than this and being told you shouldn't. Okay, well, like I said earlier on, if you expect 2% from your bonds and 3 or 4% from your stocks, you're going to be saving more aggressively for your future needs. You're going to be spending more cautiously, and you'll probably plan to work another two or three years. And if you do that, you'll be fine. It's that simple. It's, it's reasonable personal finance advice anyway. I wanted to bring up a couple points. One is that if you're reading any of Rob's papers, you should always read the footnotes. There's probably more information and references in the footnotes than in many of the actual papers. But one of them, he was talking about the Duke does a survey, I think, with CFOs where they estimate the returns of their plans. And I think now it's at least come down to around six and a half. But that was down from a double-digit return they were expecting at the worst possible time, which was the peak of the stock market in 1999. But at least they're moving in the right direction. However, and if you, Rob, you may have seen this study, but it caused me to go red in the face. State Street did a recent survey of 400 institutions with over a trillion in AUM. And their projected response to this survey was, well, how much do you expect your portfolio to return? And they said 10.9%. Not only that, they they said their hedge funds, they expected their hedge funds to return 13% per year, which is obviously net, which means all these hedge funds are magically returning 20% a year gross. Anyway, I, uh, it was one of the more astonishing surveys I've ever seen. Um, and these are supposed to be the smart guys. So, okay. So we have this low return environment, particularly in the U.S. You know, you manage a multi-billion dollar asset allocation fund. What are some of the things that U.S. investors and investors around the world can do in general that would possibly make a more balanced asset allocation? I know you talked a little bit about the three pillars, but moving away from just U.S. stocks and bonds, what what are some of the other choices out there? Well, thanks for leading the conversation in this direction. Uh, some of our discussion is is about um, what's wrong with forward-looking return expectations. But the flip side of that is, well, gee, what can I do about it? And there are things you can do about it. If you're in a low-return environment, you've got three tools in your toolkit. One, look for markets that are out of mainstream that may be cheaper that may be priced off for better forward-looking returns. Well, that turns out to be surprisingly easy. Uh, I've been described as a perma-bear because of my views on U.S. equities at current price levels. And, yeah, I've, been, uh, I've had a 
negative view on U.S. equities for several years at this point, and ultimately wrong about it before the bull market of 13 and 14. But in any event, that caution was built on a foundation of terribly low yields and anemic macroeconomic growth. So the only thing that allowed the stock market to do as well as it did was rising valuation multiples, which is a non-recurring thing. You can't count on that as a source of return year in and year out. So step one, look outside of mainstream. Most investors have a what we would call a two-pillar-centric approach to investing. First pillar is mainstream stocks. Second pillar is mainstream bonds. Let's diversify by using two pillars. Well, pardon me, but there's another pillar available to us, and that's broad diversification outside of mainstream, looking at markets that may get less attention and that may be priced to offer better forward-looking returns. You've got things like high-yield bonds, things like tips, inflation-linked bonds, commodities, emerging market stocks and bonds, and the list goes on. REITs is another example. Well, if you look around the world at this broader spectrum, you're likely to find some good deals. Like I said, I've been described as a perma-bear, but that's because of my view on U.S. equities. I'm a bull on international stocks. I'm a bull on emerging market stocks. They're cheap. Europe is priced at half the U.S. valuation multiple. You've got people on Wall Street saying, don't worry about prices in the U.S. because there's a zero yield on stocks. Where else are people going to put their money? Excuse me, because there's a zero yield on bonds and on cash, people have to put their money somewhere. So any valuation for U.S. stocks is going to be fine. Well, if you believe that thesis, then the fact that U.S. cash is zero and U.S. bonds are 2% is a good basis for being bullish on U.S. equities. All right, if you believe that thesis, what about negative yields on cash and near zero yields on bonds in Europe and Japan? Well, that should justify the sky is the limit valuation multiples for their stocks. But their stocks are cheap. They're priced at half the U.S. multiple. So I look around the world and I see some markets are cheap, some markets are richly priced. I want to put my money in markets that are cheap and I want to be patient because I have no idea how long it'll take for the markets to adjust. Usually it doesn't happen immediately and usually it doesn't take too many years for it to happen. So I want to be patient and put my money where markets are cheap. The two other ways to add value, which we can get into or, or not as you, as you like, are one, look for alpha. Look for ways to beat the market. Fundamental index is an example. And two, actively manage the asset mix. Ramp up your investments in markets that are out of favor, unloved, and cheap, and ramp down your exposure to markets that are expensive because they're beloved, trendy, and popular. In one of the phrases that I heard from you in the UCLA speech, which I have now adopted so thank you but one of the one of the better descriptions because a lot of investors i know struggle with systematically implementing this into their portfolio it's very difficult for them to add to markets that are declining and, and you know pair back markets that are going up and like the u.s has outperformed everything since the global financial crisis of the last seven years u.s stocks and bonds and by the way listeners research affiliates rob's company has a great 
software portal on their website that talks about expected returns. They have free CAPE ratios for about a dozen countries. But the phrase that I thought was a, such a perfect app description is you said, if you're managing a portfolio and you have your policy portfolio, is the concept of over-rebalancing. And I wonder if you could talk about that just for a second, about what you meant by that in the, in the context of a portfolio and how individuals could, could adopt that philosophy. We've all heard the words, buy low, sell high. And most of us have thought about it and realized that's a good idea. It's a lot easier to say than it is to do. Firstly, selling high. What does that mean? Take something that you've made a lot of money on that's been a source of great profit and joy and sell it. Sell it because it's popular, beloved, and expensive. That goes against human nature, but it's nothing like the challenges you face buying low. Whatever is cheap, whatever is newly cheap, has horrible past returns. It's inflicted pain. It's inflicted losses. Pick those markets that have hurt you recently, that have inflicted pain, and buy more. Boy, does that go against human nature. We didn't survive, our ancestors didn't survive on the African veld by running towards a lion. So it goes against human nature. And when you think about it, what's cheap is almost always cheap for a very good reason. It didn't get sold down to bargain levels because there was nothing wrong. It got sold down to bargain levels because people were legitimately fearful. So you can always find a rationalization, a straightforward and legitimate rationale for saying, hmm, this might be cheap, but then again, look at all the troubles they've got. I'd better wait for things to settle down. If you wait for things to get better, the price will already have moved. You'll have missed the opportunity. So you have to buy when people are selling. You have to buy what's out of favor, unloved, and legitimately creating fear. One way to do this, a simplistic way to do this, is to set a policy mix and just rebalance back to it. Let's go with the classic 60-40. Stocks rally, you're now at 65-35. Stocks are 65% of your portfolio. Bonds are only 35. Okay, so you're going to take some profits and trim it back to 60 and boost the bonds back to 40. All right, that's rebalancing. It's a built-in structural inherent buy-low-sell-high discipline. But it, uh, it, it does it in a way that's automatic and easy and not too painful and also not too profitable. It helps, but not hugely. What if stocks rally to 65% weight and bonds falter to a 35% weight. What if you decide, okay, whenever that happens, I'm not just going to rebalance back to my target weight. I'm going to over-rebalance. I'm going to rebalance the stocks back down, not to 60, but to 55. I'm going to top up the bonds, not to 40, but to 45. Over-rebalancing in that fashion roughly doubles the advantage of rebalancing. Over long periods of time, rebalancing in a global portfolio can add about 1%, so over-rebalancing would add about 2%. Now, if we're in a low-return environment and stocks are priced to give us oh, 3 to 4% and bonds are priced to give us 2%, so your balanced portfolio 3% if you're lucky, 
Well, over rebalancing, if it adds one or two percent, great. Now you're at, at least at four percent. If alpha from uh, fundamental index can add value of, let's say, one to two percent, great. Now you're at five or six percent. If an embrace of out of favor markets outside of mainstream, unloved, and more interestingly priced, if that can add 1%, now you're up to 6 or 7% return, which I think most investors would agree is a lot better than 3 I think, you know, advisors that are listening to this, that's a great reason to think about how to justify your fees. You know, most advisors out there, financial advisors charge a percent a year. Some of these value-added ideas Rob's talking about are great ways to, to have conversations with your clients. You know, it's interesting, Rob, we've done a lot of studies in-house that look at some fun quant studies, but they're so rare that I've always struggled on how to implement them. And a couple are looking at asset classes, sectors, or industries when they're down 60 to 90 percent, or looking at asset classes that are down, say, three years in a row, or sectors that are down five years in a row, which only happens about one percent of the time. And trying to come up with a mean reversion portfolio was always pretty difficult as a standalone because most of the time you'd be sitting in T-bills until, you know, as I thought about it and heard your speech, I said, oh, this is actually a great way to implement this when some of these rare events are happening. Start to do this rebalancing where you have a policy portfolio and then have set parameters. Hey, when XYZ gets to this valuation or maybe when it's down 80%, we're going to add a, a higher exposure. And I think that's great advice. I want to talk about two more topics that are kind of tangential I don't think we're going to have time to get into demographics today. Maybe I, this conversation could go five hours, and I'm sure you have other things to do. But two topics that I think a lot of investors don't understand that would would be interested in. One is, as we're on the topic of asset allocation, I was looking at an old paper you guys did, I think on ETF.com, called Bonds Why Bother. And it was talking about 2008 and 2009. And you said if if this teaches us if 2008 2009 teaches us anything it's the truth in the old adage the only thing that goes up in a market crash is correlation and you talk about you said look we track 16 different asset classes and i don't know if you remember this paper or study and then you talk about what happened in september 08 and then what happened in uh, october 2008 do you want to comment on that or is this is this paper too old to- sure sure <laughs> yeah the adage on Wall Street, the only thing that goes up in a market crash is is correlation, was vividly illustrated in September and October of 2008 during the market crash. Best of my recollection, the only thing that went up in price, because it went down in yield, was long treasury bonds. That's it. Everything else, stocks crashed, commodities crashed, REITs crashed, credit crashed, even investment-grade bonds crashed. Investment-grade bonds were briefly trading at 5.5% spread over treasuries. Good gracious, that hasn't been seen since the depths of the Great Depression. So when you look at a situation like that, a lot of people fret that correlations go up and no matter where you put your money, you're going to get hurt. There's another way to look at this, and that is correlation over time. If the correlation is normally low, that is to say, if you find asset classes that are normally marched to their own separate drummer and the correlation spikes during a time of market distress, a market crash, 
Well, one response to that is to wring your hands and say, gosh, there's no benefits from diversification. The other is to say, well, gosh, these are normally uncorrelated. One of them crashed in sympathy to the other and shouldn't have crashed and therefore is a bargain. And so in our own asset allocation work, we looked at the diversifying markets, emerging markets, bonds, commodities, convertibles, and so forth. And we realized, gee, in a stock market crash based on some of the systemic risks that we're looking at, some of these asset classes have legitimate merit and shouldn't have crashed. So we ramped up exposure to those diversifying markets and wound up by the fall of 09, recouping the entire drawdown so that we were back in new all-time high territory by late 2009. Well, that was very satisfying, but it came out of, in part, it came out of a desire for broad diversification, and in part, it came out of a recognition that diversification works even if temporarily it doesn't, even if correlations soar in a market crash, that actually creates new opportunity. Well, you had a great quote. I think it might have been in another paper. And, and this is kind of a quote that I think would most investors would be surprised to hear someone say. But you said, a balanced investor that's disciplined about investing, the damage from bear markets is shockingly mild. And maybe you want to comment on that. But I think a lot of it has to do with the fact that most investors just think in terms of their domestic stocks and bonds, and that's it. But when you have one of these truly diversified portfolios, you know, the bear markets traditionally aren't, aren't as bad as a 60-40. Sure. And actually, it goes beyond what you've just uh, suggested. What's the value of our portfolio? Is it the dollar value of the assets in the portfolio? Well, that poll goes around quite a bit. Or is it the sustainable spending that the portfolio can get, deliver on a long-term basis? If you have stocks today yielding 2%, Let's suppose we have a bear market and a year from now, they're down by half, horrible bear market, and the yield is now 4%. What's your income on that portfolio? Well, it hasn't changed. You're still getting the same income from the portfolio. It's still, in all likelihood, producing income that grows with inflation. And so if you take things from the perspective of sustainable long-term yield and view your wealth in terms of how much sustainable long-term income can this portfolio deliver to me, you'll find that the market volatility, you can just shrug it off. The crash in 1929 to 32 was an 87% drop in the stock market. If you were a 60-40 investor invested in uh, 60% in 10-year treasuries and 40% in the U.S. stock market, how much did you lose? You lost 65%. Ouch, two-thirds of your wealth, gone. Except that's not your wealth. The wealth is the sustainable spending of the portfolio. If you were spending the income distributed by that portfolio, how much did the income fall in the greatest depression in U.S. history? It fell by 22%. Okay. Could we survive on a 22% pay cut? Most of us could. And it wouldn't be pleasant, but that's not a crash. What crashed was the price 
that people were willing to pay for a given dollar of income. And so people forget that the bottom number on your brokerage statement that says this portfolio is worth X, that's not, that's not the best measure of uh, how much wealth you've got. It's something that's very volatile and that's not tied uh, except indirectly to the long-term spending power of your portfolio. If people focus on long-term spending power, they're going to see, oh gosh, I can improve that by going with assets that are abnormally high yield, offering more income than they normally do, with assets that have become cheap, and I can benefit my spending power by over-rebalancing. All of these things are wonderful ways to improve your long-term experience. Let me just touch on one other point you made, and that's the role of a financial advisor. The number one role of a financial advisor, I think, is Hippocratic Oath, first do no harm. Why do I say that? Because if you help your clients to not lose money by chasing popular trends, by buying what's gone up because past is not prologue by selling what's been disappointing. If you can persuade them to not do damage to themselves, you've done a tremendous amount of good. A financial advisor who adds zero alpha is a big step in the right direction relative to most investors, (laughs) a big step. And if a financial advisor can add a little bit on top of that, Boy, they're golden. Yeah, Vanguard does a lot of studies there. You know, they estimate it at three percentage points a year, half of which is simply the behavioral coaching, keeping people from doing dumb stuff over and over again. All right, we're going to do a couple quick take questions and then start to wind this down. We'd love to keep you all day. One that came in from Twitter or email, I can't remember which, was, you know, says, look, we read your papers on smart beta. This is really interesting about a a factor getting crowded. They said, how is is there a good way to measure the amount of flows that may alter a strategy? Or is there a reliable way for people to kind of monitor this sort of information? It's not something that Morningstar readily publishes. Uh, Is is there a way to keep an eye on it? Or what's what's the best way to kind of be abreast of what's going on with the factor valuations? You know, in terms of how how crowded space is getting. Uh, There are data sources out there. I'm not aware of which specific data sources would be best. Uh, The one I guess I'm most familiar with is Morningstar's surveys of what they call strategic beta, which is smart beta writ large to include anything disciplined. (laughs) And that gives you a sense for what the different kinds of strategies are uh, seeing in the way of flows. The other thing you have to be aware of, which is uh, much more subtle, is that different strategies have different capacity. Cap weighting, of course, has vast capacity. If, If a third of the global stock market was indexed to the global stock market, it wouldn't hurt anything. It'd be fine. We're about halfway there, by the way. If... 1% of the stock market was invested in the momentum strategies. Those momentum strategies would be ripped apart because they trade too aggressively all in the same direction. Okay, so there's a different capacity for different strategies. And so 
it, one should do a little bit of homework on the strategies they're looking at and ask, okay, what's the capacity? The capacity for quality strategies is pretty darn good. For fundamental index, it's vast. For cap weighting, it's beyond vast. For momentum, and uh, it's very small. For low vol, it's a little small. And so these are differences that make a difference. I hope that helps. It does. And and I think the answer, of course, is is a lot for a lot of cases, it, it depends on the asset class and strategy. If you're trading Colombian stocks, it's going to be a lot less than U.S. large cap. Another another question that came in over the transom was basically said, you know, Rob, uh, you, as a, someone who thinks about global portfolios and global tactical portfolios, what's your opinion on A, tail risk strategies to diversify a portfolio and B, manage futures as a complementary strategy? Yeah. Firstly, tail risk, it's insurance. You, When you insure your home, you pay money for it. You expect to lose money on insurance. You hope to lose money on insurance. You expect to lose money on tail risk hedging. You hope to lose money on tail risk hedging. Because if things are chugging along just fine with tail risk hedging, you're going to have a lower return. It really only helps when you have catastrophe strike. When catastrophe strikes, the cost of tail risk hedging soars. So once you've benefited from tail risk hedging, get rid of it because it's now temporarily way too expensive. That's uh, very different from the way most people think about it. Most people think about it as a value-added strategy. It's not. Managed futures are not an investment in any asset class. People think of it as a commodities investment. It's not. It's it's net zero. It's long sum commodities, short other commodities. For most managed futures strategies, what it really is is a momentum strategy that chases what's newly beloved and has performed well and a bet on manager skill. And if you've got a great Managed futures manager, it's going to be marvelous. And if you've got an average managed futures manager, it's going to be, it's going to go nowhere for you. Uh, it's not an asset class. It's a bet on whether the manager or the algorithm, uh, has merit. Last question. And then we'll, we'll start to slow down. Someone asked in, they said, what, how do you think about international bonds. You know, a lot of investors in the U.S. to have a global market portfolio, it's roughly half of the world's market cap. And you've written some papers on, you know, bond indexing and the challenges with the same thing with market cap indexing in in the bond world, which allocates most heavily to the most uh, to the countries that issue the most debt. So how do you uh, think about allocating to international bonds? And then B, a quick side question is, would you consider hedging the currency exposure or no? Generally, I prefer not to hedge currency exposure. Reason for that is very simple. Hedging is not all that cheap. It's going to, like buying insurance, it's going to erode your long-term return. So I prefer to roll with the currency risk, especially when the dollar has been stupendously strong. When the dollar has been rallying, the last thing I want to do is hedge back into the dollar because past is not prologue. The dollar has just become more expensive. Why do I want to buy a more expensive currency just to protect against that volatility that might otherwise have gone in my favor. As for global bonds, I think the simple truism is that 
cap weighting in bonds means you're if you're a bond investor, you're a lender, and if you're cap weighting, you're lending in direct proportion to the debt appetite of the borrowers. The more they want to borrow, the more you're lending them. Why on earth would you want to do that? It makes no sense at all. It makes more sense to weight bonds in accordance with the debt service capacity of the borrower. How much debt could they comfortably handle? So for global portfolios, weighting the bond portfolio by GDP or even population or something like that to reflect inputs of um, production, the the inputs of production are capital, labor, resources. You can weight the bonds in proportion to a blend of all three. That's what fundamental index in bonds does. Well, that makes a lot more sense than cap weighting. You have the added problem, and this is primarily a developed world phenomenon, U.S., Europe, and Japan, of financial repression, pushing the real yields negative, pushing the nominal yields negative in some cases. Why on earth would I want to pay money to lend money to a foreign government? Why would I want to do that? And yet that's what a negative yield implies. So when I look at the international markets, I look at uh, most international sovereign debt in the developed world is pretty darned uninteresting. U.S., ironically, is just about the most interesting out there because it's got anemic yields, not zero yields. But can we do better? Oh, sure. Emerging markets debt has about a 5% spread relative to the G5. Is their historical default rate anywhere near 5%? No, it's about 1%. So, gee, that sounds like a pretty good deal. Do I want to hedge the risk of default by buying credit default swaps? No, that's another form of insurance and you're going to pay for it. I'd rather ride with the risk and control the risk by controlling the size of my exposure to that market and not having more in that market than I could afford to lose. So yes, there are interesting opportunities in bond land. Most of them are outside of mainstream. And I think that's a surprise to most investors because they hear so much in the news about Switzerland and Japan and negative yields, which is also just kind of a crazy world we live in. But that's what they think of when they think of sovereign bonds. They're not really thinking of emerging. And it's funny because if you pull up emerging markets, you know, even the names that sound scary, you know, Brazil or a lot of these names, you diversify, you end up with a pretty nice portfolio. And even if you look into Vanguard's holdings and some of the emerging markets they own, Iraqi bonds and Kazakhstan and everything else. So they go even, even more, <laughs> even more to the extreme. All right, Rob, look, we're going to wind it down at the end of the podcast. We always ask each guest if they, if there is something beautiful, useful or downright magical that, uh, most people haven't heard of. Do you have anything for us today? I could say that something utterly magical is our website and its tools for asset allocation, but that would be self-serving, so let me not say that. One of my weird hobbies is to chase solar eclipses. It takes me to all kinds of odd places around the world, and a total solar eclipse is magical. It is an amazing spectacle. I've seen people burst into tears of joy at seeing a total eclipse. Well, next August, I think it's the 21st of August, there's a total eclipse coming across the U.S. for the first time in over 30 years. Cool. 
Where's it coming? It's going from central Oregon to central South Carolina. Draw a line there between the two and be on that line on August 21. And I, I would urge the folks listening to this podcast to make plans and be somewhere on the center line of the eclipse and take in some magic. It is just breathtaking. Sounds like a good idea for the Research Affiliates 2017 annual meeting. <laughs> you can hold it at <laughs> 2 in the morning at one of these locations. Uh, I love it. I, that's a great idea. For, for the listeners, little known, Fact, Rob was an aspiring astrophysicist. He says the reason he pivoted into finance was, uh, the, there wasn't as much competition from the, from the high end math world as there was in astrophysics. I actually started out as an aerospace engineer because I came from a family of aerospace guys. And until I took about one semester of college where I realized that aerospace engineering wasn't becoming an astronaut, but rather taking classes like statics and dynamics, which made me nauseous. So transferred quickly into, into biotech and moved on from there. Anyway, all right, my useful magical idea is this is an article that was posted by the blog 538, which uh, for listeners, many are familiar. It's a quant blog, Nate Silver, who writes a lot about uh, politics, which interests me very little, as well as sports, which interests me a lot more. Um, but one of, one of the staff writers wrote an article that was pretty interesting because it took into account a couple of things. One, it's quant screening and B, it takes into account kind of the status quo of what's assumed. And the title of the article, this is a couple of years old, was stop playing Monopoly with your kids, parentheses, and play these games instead. And so they went to a board game website called Board Geeks where people review board games and what they found out was, and they did this for each age bracket, they rated all the games and found out that a lot of the highest rated and most reviewed games were games most people had never heard of, like Hive Pocket, Dixit, but a lot of traditional games like Candyland and Monopoly were very lowly rated. And so I don't have any kids. I got seven nieces and nephews, bought a handful of these uh, and took them to Denver last time I was in town, and they love the game. So check that. We'll put it in the show notes. It's a great, uh, a great idea for games. Now, the only what Rob would probably say, or any quant listening, is there's a little bit of selection bias there, and that no four year olds or six year olds are logging into Board Game Geek and rating these games, but it's probably the adults and parents. So a slight survivorship bias but so far the games have been money all right rob so you mentioned um the website is that the best place for people to find uh, more information on your writing and uh, research affiliates that's the best place we just redid our website in a ground up way uh, revamping it completely to make it um, pretty dramatically user-friendly we think and hope and, of course, we welcome feedback. So if you go to the website, you'll see our asset allocation tools. You'll see our articles. You'll see our research papers. You'll see links to organizations that run money using our ideas, uh, companies like uh, PIMCO, Schwab, uh, Invesco Power Shares, Nomura, and so forth. It's a pretty powerful tool. Parts of it, the asset allocation page has gone viral. It's had over a million hits since we launched it two years ago. That's great. You know, we send a ton of people y'all's way because you update CAPE ratios for a couple dozen countries. And it's always fun to go on there and see 
just how cheap Brazil is relative to just how expensive the U.S. is, and I, I believe that updates quarterly. But uh, a pretty, a pretty, yes. a pretty nice interface. Look, Rob, it's been a blast. This is uh, we're going to post all of the show notes um, to the blog at mebfaber.com forward slash podcast, uh, including a bunch of Rob's papers as well as ones we didn't get to talk about today. It's kind of like getting a quick masterclass MBA in investing. So Rob, thank you for coming on the show. Listeners, thanks for taking the time to listen. We always welcome feedback as well as questions for the Q&A mailbag at feedback at com. Remember, you can always subscribe to the show on iTunes as well as Overcast and lots of other podcast players. And if you're really enjoying the podcast, please leave a review. Thanks for listening, friends, and good investing. <laughs>